for a fairly bumpy road. Uh, he's probably not wrong if you take a very uh, long-term view in terms of where the Indian economy is heading on a relative basis. It will be probably the second largest economy uh, by 2040 in terms of GDP. Um, so, uh, in, in a sense, he's right that the Indian economy is on a continued curve higher. But he did also, I think, suggest that it will be bumpy. And um, I would be mindful as an investor that uh, if you're prepared to wear the bumps along the road, um, the outlook is strong for the Indian economy um, by definition. And uh, this is, uh, but if you look at different time frames, it can be, you know, it can be pretty challenging. But right now, uh, stock prices are high. Um, they probably will need to retrace at some point. But uh, the outlook for the long term on the Indian economy is very, very good. Okay, Toby, have a great weekend. Thank you very much. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this week. The ASX 200 in Australia up 1%. Nikkei 225 in Japan up 1.4%. Futures markets indicating a gain of about 0.9% for the Hang Seng at the open. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil off slightly, $82.67 a barrel. Gold is at $1,860 an ounce. And that's it from me. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work in just a moment. The weather forecast, mainly fine and dry. Maximum temperature around 25 degrees. And then it's going to stay fine and dry during the weekend. Uh, temperature difference between day and night will be relatively large. Uh, it's 21 degrees right now, 49% relative humidity. And there is a red fire danger warning in force. 8.31 and a half. Todd Harding has the half-hour news. An art critic has welcomed the long-awaited opening of the M-Plus Museum, saying it has a regional significance as one of the largest museums in Asia. John Batten also said Hong Kong's local art scene has lacked a serious platform to display its contemporary art. The design collection and the, um, the focus on contemporary Chinese art will be, will be very significant. But it also has a, a very special place in the local art scene because... We've lacked um, uh, very serious museums to show contemporary art. And the Hong Kong Museum of Art is basically a, has a very good collection of, of traditional Chinese art. But it, it's always struggled to, to curate good shows of contemporary art. The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has warned climate negotiators in Glasgow to pick up the pace. They're trying to reach a meaningful deal before the scheduled end of the COP26 today. Guterres told the gathering the world was on course for catastrophic temperature rises. Chong Chanyao, co-founder and CEO of environmental NGO Carbon Care InnoLab, is at the summit in Glasgow. He said everyone must keep working to ensure governments and the business community hear their concerns. There are um, indigenous people coming along, young people coming along. There are women groups, and civil societies um, from Hong Kong. Um, the Carbon Care InnoLab has... Uh, organized six young persons to come along and to join the global vo- voice. I, I think the global voice has to, to be always there uh, so the governments can hear it, the business leaders can hear it, and um, they are therefore uh, tasked uh, to take actions. 
The South African president, who oversaw the end of white minority rule, has offered an unqualified apology for apartheid in a recorded message released shortly after his death. F.W. de Klerk, who was 85, acknowledged the pain and indignity that was inflicted. A former British MP and anti-apartheid campaigner, Peter Hayne, who grew up in South Africa, said Mr de Klerk should be credited with helping to end apartheid. F.W. de Klerk should rightly be credited with orchestrating the transition from the brutal system of apartheid, the most institutionalised racist system the world's ever known, to a non-racial democracy. He was the one who showed great courage and leadership in releasing Nelson Mandela, in unbanning the African National Congress, and in starting four years of sometimes turbulent and difficult negotiations, which ultimately saw Mandela elected president. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and your co-host today is Andrew Work. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Janice. Ready to rock. Today we're talking about poverty alleviation in Hong Kong and the new M Plus Museum. The government's new poverty situation report revealed that Hong Kong's poverty rate fell slightly to 7.9% in 2020, but only after taking into account all government help, including everything from public housing and welfare payments to one-off measures like the $10,000 handout it gave last year. The underlying situation, though, worsened, with 1.65 million people, or 23.6% of the population, living below the poverty line. That's the highest level since the administration set an official poverty line in 2013. So what should we make of the report? Is the poverty problem getting worse in Hong Kong or not? After 9.15am, we'll look at the brand new M Plus Museum in West Kowloon, which opens to the public later this morning. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 23388266. To kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Professor Paul Yip, the Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. And uh, we'll shortly be joined by Peace Wong, the Chief Officer of Policy Research and Advocacy at the Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Good morning to you, Professor Yip. Uh, good morning, Janice. And uh, thanks for joining us on Backchat. So um, what do you make of the latest poverty figures? Well, I think the, um, when we're looking at, we're talking about 23.5% of the people, I think under the present definition of the poverty line, I think they are uh, classified as poor. And actually, um, of course, I think uh, the government has uh, put much emphasis on what happened after the intervention. I think it has gone down to 7.9%. However, I think when we're looking at the historical figures, actually you can see from 2009 onwards, actually our poverty rate, I mean, has been average increasing. I think from 26, 20.6% to 23.6%. And then in terms of the people, I think we're talking about from 1.3 million, I think, to about 1.65 million. So I think the situation is... is Yes, yes, serious, and I don't think the government has really ad- has addressed. I think the big uh, problem of the poverty, I think, in Hong Kong. 
Yeah, one one of the things the government did was uh, draw an official poverty line in 2013 for people that might not be current with that. What what is the current definition of poverty in Hong Kong? What are we talking about? Well, at this moment, I think we adopt the international definition. I think it's about fifty percent. I think if you earn fifty percent less than the median income, I think uh, then then you will be classified poor. For example, I think uh, for a one uh, the single um, uh, the single um, the family, I think if you earn I think less than four thousand eight hundred dollars, I think you will be classified as poor. Of course, I think this popular line. I mean, if you even live above the poverty line, it doesn't mean that your quality of life is very good. Mm. But it is uh, one way for the international comparison and also it's a way, I think, to measure the, the effectiveness, I think, of any government measure or any measure to try to bring down the poverty line. Okay. I mean, live, uh, less than $5,000 a month for a family of four sounds pretty atrocious. Uh, oh, no. Th- uh, that is only for a single family. I mean, for a, uh, for a family of four, I think we are talking about uh, maybe it is twenty thousand dollars. Okay, so four four thousand eight hundred dollars per person. Yes, yes. Okay, and and does that now? One of the things the government has touted is that they are, you know, backstopping people's incomes and with public housing. So if you have that four thousand eight hundred, does that assume that you you are you do not have public housing that you are paying your own way? Oh no 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 no! I think uh, you are exactly right. I mean, uh, what happened now? Where in our data is suggested. I think for those people, if you are living in public housing, I think you are much better off, I think, than those people, I think, who do not live in the public housing. So I think, uh, uh, but when they say 4,000, it, it, it is just talking about, I think, your household income, I think. And Professor Yip, uh, like you mentioned earlier, there's a huge discrepancy between the uh, pre- and post-government intervention figures. The uh, poverty rate is uh, 7.9% after factoring in government help, but uh, it skyrockets to uh, 23.6% if this isn't taken into account. Which figure do you think uh, more uh, more accurately illustrates the actual situation? For me, I always say that it is 23.6%. I think it is talking about the so-called pre-intervention figures. I think when we talk about the post-intervention figures, we are talking about, like uh, what you just mentioned before, is that this one-off, I think, support, I mean, this $10,000, I think, go into every resident who are age 18 or above. And that costs the government, I think, more than $60 billion. And, and we do not expect, I think, the government will have the financial, uh, the, this, uh, the power, I mean, to maintain, I think, that sort of one-off uh, cash allowance support every year. And actually, when we look at that, it is also not the most effective way, I think, to address, I think, the public problem. I think what we see now in Hong Kong, we are talking about there are 47,000 people, they have the job, but they're still under the poverty line. We're still talking about um, there are uh, 143,000 young people who are aged 18 to 29, I think they are being classified poor. And some of them, they are actually, I think they are highly educated. And also we are looking at those people who have low skill, and then they are also, they are working, but they are also under poverty line, which is very related to about, I think, our very, very low, I think, our minimum wages. And we're also looking at about there's a lot of people, I think, who are working but who do not uh, have the full-time work. 
just like when you look at the construction workers and those people, they do not, uh, they cannot engage work in full capacity. They might only uh, have the opportunity to work for five days or ten days in a month. So at the end, I think in terms of the monthly income, I think that they still do not earn enough. I think they put the food on the table for the family. But Professor Yip, I mean, uh, you're, what you're saying is that uh, giving out a massive or for, for the government to give out massive handouts uh, to keep poverty situation under control is uh, not sustainable in the long term. But uh, does the government have a choice? I mean, as the economy is trying to rebound from the effects of COVID? Well, I think it is good, I think, to have this uh, one time measure, I think, just to give the money back to the community. But what we are saying in terms of the amount of the money that uh, he is spending and then the impact he has made, I think, to the community. And then what we are saying that, I think, if we can, if we can afford to spend $60 billion, I'm sure there will be much more work I think, that can be done and then can make this situation better. What happened now is like the firework. Yes, it is good to see the firework, but if this firework, it doesn't last. So what we have to do is we have to work on to improve, I think, the wages of these people who are, uh, who are living on the minimum wages. We are trying to have to work on to improve, I think, this career opportunity for young people. And then we uh, have to try to stop the exploitation of this outsourcing worker for this low-skilled people. I think that is what we are told, a long-term solution. Because when you look at in the past decade, I think it doesn't matter what the government has been doing. If you are not going to touch on this structural problem, I think this poverty problem, it just will get worse. Before we continue with the discussion, I must say we did invite the Welfare Secretary, Lord Chi Kuang, on our program this morning, but unfortunately he, he couldn't make it. And uh, right now um, we have uh, Peace Wong on the line from the uh, Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Um, thanks for joining us this morning. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Hi. So, so um, Peace Wong, do you think the latest figures reflect the real situation? Uh, uh, yes, I, 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 I think somehow it's uh, I think accurate. Actually, but uh, just at the uh, guess because I uh, just uh, said, I think uh, it's because I, I think that the figures um, is about uh, 55,000 people, people falling in poverty, but I think it's much more because of the uh, effect of the one-off cash transfer program. So I also agree that it's not sustainable, it's not effective, and it's not well-targeted. So, so what can be done? I mean, is this is the is the broader effect of COVID? Should, should we expect these numbers to improve over the next couple of years as, as things hopefully go back to some semblance of normal in terms of you know, economic interaction with the mainland and the rest of the world? Uh, or is there a bigger force at work that you know, is, is pushing more and more people to this lower level of income? Yes, actually, I think we have to take a um, long-term perspective in terms of poverty alleviation. So, so first, I think the government should have more long-term commitment. So uh, I think uh, the civil society has long uh, uh, asked for the government to have uh, uh, not just the poverty alive, but also the poverty target. So uh, actually, it's also something that uh, our country, I mean, mainland China is doing. And in terms of the uh, change in the uh, social skills, uh, uh, the cash transfer system, actually, I, I think what the government think about is uh, whether our social skills system is uh, effective enough to uh, face the risk uh, uh, whenever there is any economic downturn. I, I think the, the situation last year is very, 
good example that actually our social case system or the so-called uh, regular cash transfer program is not very effective uh, uh, to help us to face that economic downturn. So that, that means maybe we can uh, uh, um, analyze the statistic in other way. It's because last year we have 1.65 million going into poverty life before the uh, government intervention. So if you compare to 2019, it is about uh, 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 150,000 people, uh, uh, 160,000 people who fall below the poverty line because of the economic downturn. You can you can somehow analyze uh, analyze the figure like that. And but if you see how much our uh, social security system or the cash transfer, regular cash transfers program to help with people, when that uh, 160,000 people fall below the poverty line, it's just 50,000. So it means that it's just one third of the people. Uh, they prevent from falling the, uh, below the poverty line under the current economic downturn because of our social security system. I think it's not very effective, isn't it? So I think what the government should do is to think about how to change our social, uh, 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 reform our social security system so as to make it more uh, effective to uh, uh, responsive to um, to, 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 to the uh, economic downturn or the uh, unemployment problem that's caused by the uh, uh, any uh, economic fluctuation in society. So this is something uh, actually the civil society has long uh, asked for that the government should be uh, should have a more responsive uh, unemployment assistance system. It's now all the uh, people who are if they are unemployed. This the only one system that can help them in, in our social system is the CSSA. But actually the CSSA is not quite uh, well targeted to help the people on that uh, temporary economic hardship. I think it's more for the people who are on more chronic uh, poverty problem. So I, I think this is something the government should think about. Professor Yip, what do you think? Do you think uh, there needs to be a reform of the uh, Hong Kong social security system? Oh, yes, uh, you, 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 sorry, you, you mean it should or it will be? Professor Yip? Yes, uh, yes I think uh, we should uh, look at the how to uh, use the social services, the social security support much more effectively. I mean, just give you one example, like what the government is trying to give the uh, so-called the low-income support. I mean, for those people, support them to go to look for jobs. And actually, I think these people, uh, when they look for jobs, and they, these are the jobs. I think there has been outsourcing by the government so actually, the government is paying the outsourcing company, but the people who work for this outsourcing company, they get a much lower wages. But because the wages are so low, so the government actually has to supplement, I mean, this low, uh, low uh, earning, um, this work, uh, I mean, the raise the level of income. So actually, I think it is the government pay themselves, he created a problem for themselves. So I think this is a much more to look at the social security system, our outsourcing, this sort of problem. I think these are the things I think that the, that the government should look at. One of the very interesting thing is what we're looking at the poverty family. They, those families have two children, actually have a higher poverty rate than the others. So what it really suggests that also our child care support system, I think for the families, they are not, uh, they are not sufficient which make the people even they like to go out to work, but they cannot work because they're being uh, trapped uh, they're under the household and then they cannot go out to work. So I think there's uh, so many things that the government can do, do in a more sustainable and long
can make an impact, I think, to the poverty in the uh, long run. But now, at this moment, I think we just have not seen the commitment, the vision, and then the leadership, and then to do the job. Haven't, haven't these these kind of these programs like you're talking about the outsourced workers and this is a problem? But I mean, isn't that how the government kind of injects little bits of employment into the economy? I mean, we have taxis, we have construction, and we have cleaners because I mean, people you know pre-COVID who would come to visit Hong Kong and they're just shocked at how many cleaners there are everywhere all the time. I go to a tiny park on Saturday morning; it's got like five people cleaning this park you know, every day, and it's it's you know of course they outsource it because it's cheaper, but you know it's a little bit of a government make work project, frankly. But then wouldn't, wouldn't those people all be unemployed? Well, I think then, 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 then we are talking about the, the retraining. I mean, when you look at Singapore, no? I think they, uh, they will train these uh, middle-aged people. I mean, they do something else. I mean, rather than because we are exploiting these people, I mean, we, to maintain them in this low-skill job, and then there is no way out. So, so we are working on this down spiral, whether we are working on an upward spiral up, Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, you know, when I talk about these buffer programs, I mean, the construction's to keep young men off the streets causing trouble because then they've got jobs. Um, the cleaners tend to be people who are quite a bit older and, and you know, when it's pretty easy to say, oh, just retrain them. I mean, you know what I mean? They, they don't seem like they're very, they're, they're not, they tend to have mobility problems. They don't move very quickly. I mean, if you just say, hey, no problem, just take the 60-year-old unilingual woman and give her computer coding programming training. I mean, well, it doesn't we, seem we, realistic. We, Peace Wong, you're the chief officer for, for policy research. What are your top three uh, measures that you would like to see implemented that you think can make a real real change in terms of people's situation and reducing poverty? So, uh, um, the first is, uh, just as I said, I think have to, uh, Hong Kong has, has developed a more responsive uh, unemployment assistance system. Uh, and second, I think the minimum wage, I think, is to improve. I, I think retraining, I think, is, is, is important. But... Just as you say, for the very old people or very uh, uneducated people, I think maybe it's very quite hard for them to retrain them. So what we have to think about is even they work in a very deprived job, uh, is there any chance that they can have a better salary? I think now the minimum wage is certainly 37 I think it's really, really, very, very, very low. Uh, actually, I think the hourly wage of the workers who is in the lowest 2% of salary scale is pretty light. So it means that our minimum wage now is quite meaningless to protect any people. So I think 
uh, improve mineral wage in a second. And the uh, first thing I think, uh, actually, if we take a longer perspective, I think the, the largest driving force of the increase in poverty population in Hong Kong is the aging population. So we it's because we have a increasing aging population who are very poor, uh, deprived, without any pension. So I think the government is thinking about how to build a more effective and also robust pension system. Mm. And that kind of goes to a bigger problem, demographics. If we're losing a lot of our young people or parents with young children are, are leaving Hong Kong, uh, we have a lot of more older people. I mean, is that just, you know, is that just naturally going to tip us towards a situation where you, if you're measuring poverty as half the median, you're, as your working population base shrinks, you're, you're, you know, the, the numbers are going to get really skewed and you will inevitably have more people that are considered to be living in poverty by that relative measure of half of the median wage. Can it be avoided? But, sorry, you can hear, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, yes, I, I, I think the demographic uh, tra- transform is uh, something you is you is something you have to accept. So I think uh, the poverty popul- the poverty situation in Hong Kong is quite structural. But I, I think what we have to think about is how do you deal with this structural problem? So it's because I, I think in Hong Kong our pension system is developed very very late and also actually very undeveloped. Actually, our only pension system is the MP- MPF, and I think most of the uh, uh, older population in Hong Kong, they have just a tiny MPF. So I, I think the government government should think about how to deal with this situation. I think is pension, reforming the pension system is something that uh, you cannot uh, omit or um, um, if, 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 you, if, if you're facing the uh, situation, the, the demographic situation in Hong Kong. Right. Yeah. I mean, so so reform of the pension system, because I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people are depending on the MPF in their old age. Um, so, I mean, but, but you know, you get to this point, but I mean, if, if, if the demographics are against you, isn't a lot of the, you know, when you start measuring income and therefore how you de- develop the measurement of the median income, um, it sounds like it's going to be more and more of that income is going to be derived from government sources. Uh, yes, but I think it's something... Uh Actually, yes, yes. I think I think it's yes. So, but actually, I think in terms of the uh, whole uh, welfare spending in Hong Kong, if you compare to other uh, developed, well-developed countries or cities, I think it's not really that high. So, I I think actually, I think it's because I I I think the Asian population in Hong Kong is I I think Asian population is uh, a very common phenomenon for all the developed countries. I think they are all facing. So, but actually, it's because they they know that. They, are fa- they, they will face that strain in demographic situation. So they have planned for the uh, pension system reform in very uh, uh, long, time, long, long time before. So, it, so I, I think the situation is that uh, the government should think about how to maybe tax more money or get contribution from our remaining younger population and then build a better pension system. How are we going to pay for that? I mean... If we've got more and more people that aren't working and fewer and fewer people that are working, how, you know, when, when do we get I mean, at a breaking it, point? What we see is that this aging is, is not new. I mean, every country, I think they're facing this problem. Sure. I think when you're looking at the Western country, I think they talk about the extension of the working age. I mean, I mean so now I think you start uh, asking to retire at the age of 60, then you move to 65. I mean, you, um, in Germany, I think that they are extending the to 67. I mean, that is to ensure, I think, the sustainability, I think, of their pension system. 
I think for one thing, I mean, we also face the ageism, I think, in the workforce. I think in Hong Kong, I think there are a lot of companies, I think they are not willing. I think they employ those people, I think, after age 60. It is because of the very uh, high increase of the medical insurances and all other expenses. So I think what we have to do is just to provide some sort of provision, I think, to ensure that those people who would like to employ this, um, not so young people, I think, still remain them in the workforce. And 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 because we have an aging population, we have 18.5 percent of people age 65 or above now. So how can we create this uh, employment? I think to serve this uh, so-called uh, silver generation, I think that is something that we have to look at. All right, and uh, Peace Wong, um, can you just give us briefly an, an idea of what the current poverty situation is like? Just maybe in 30 seconds. Um, well, so uh, in terms of figures, so it's about uh, 55,000, but I think uh, just like uh, I, I, uh, what, what uh, people have said, I think uh, we cannot just... Uh, uh, think about poverty situation as a figures. I think it's real people. So we have people who uh, hardly make for the enemies after paying the rents and then... Um All right, uh, Peace Wong, I guess we'll have to leave it there because it's almost time for the news summary. So I'm afraid uh, we have to take a short break. Uh, Mr Wong, I know you have to go. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Peace Wong, the Chief Executive Officer of Policy Research and Advocacy at the Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Uh, Professor Yip, you'll be staying with us for a bit longer so we can continue discussion this uh, discussion right after the news. And uh, let's have a look at the weather. Um, right now, it's uh, uh, mainly fine and uh, very dry with a top temperature of around 25 degrees, winds moderate north to northeasterlies. And uh, the temperature reading at the observatory right now is 21 degrees and... Uh, the relative humidity is 47%. The SAR. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is a Back Chat on a Friday morning with Andrew Work and me, Janice Wong. Let's get back to our discussion on poverty alleviation. Still on the line with us is Professor Paul Yip, the Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. Also on the line with us now is Dr. Vera Yoon, an economics lecturer at the University of Hong Kong. And if you have any questions or comments on today's topics, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 23388266. And our Facebook page is backchat on RTHK Radio 3. And uh, I do have one email here. It's uh, from David. Um, David says, if you want... It, if you want to alleviate poverty, you have to stop giving people pay rises. You have to make everything that is important cheaper, as in electricity, water, internet, phone, schools, and of course, rent. Rent especially on shops. Then we can have cheaper food and stop importing expensive foods. And uh, that email is from David. Um, let's get back to our discussion now. Dr. Yoon, thanks for joining us this morning. Yes, first of all, first of all, um, what's your what's your view about of the email just now from David? Um, I think for uh, poverty alleviation, it's a very long term matter. So uh, we will have to have transfer program that helps um, the bottom 
the grassroots who actually may not have the fortune or the ability to climb up um, the ladder. But also we need to, um, in the long run, cultivate um, more human capital to help them to be able to get out of the property trap. Um, and so there should be um, better education, vocational training, um, that kind of programs other than just transfer and social uh, assistance programs. Right. And I mean, we're talking about different solutions for different parts of the population, right? And we were talking a little bit before you came on that maybe it's not so realistic to expect somebody in their late 60s to all of a sudden start job retraining. But, you know, obviously that would be much better targeted at somebody who's younger, maybe somebody who dropped out of high school, not really university material, but there might be something, some other kind of vocation they could take up. Um, but I mean, how much... Fine, how much fine-tuning or how much uh, targeting can we do in terms of working with different different groups? Have I, yeah, I mean, are there, how many different groups are there, first of all, to deal with? Young people, old people? I mean, how else do we slice and dice the, uh, the poverty-stricken community? I don't know, because I do not see all the policies um, having the aim of um, reducing the poverty rate or the proportion of people living under the poverty line. I mean, different programs, they have different policy goals um, for education, vocational training, we hope to accumulate human capital. So um, I think when different things, they overlap with each other, they would have some um, effect on poverty alleviation. But I I think if you target on the rate itself, it will direct the focus to transfer program. Because when you look at the poverty indicator this year, you can see that before policy intervention increases, it shows that well, that means uh, there's actually more disparity in income because um, the property line in Hong Kong is defined as 50% of the median um, household income. And and then the median doesn't really draw the... But we presume that for the middle class, they can still keep their job. They work from home during the COVID. But then for the lower class, uh, many of them work in service industries that involve human interaction and was hit uh, the hardest by uh, the COVID. That's why it actually increases the before policy intervention rate, because for those who work in the service industry who, who are in the lower middle class, they drop below the poverty line. But then for after policy intervention, you can see that um, the poverty rate actually uh, decreases, which means it's actually lower than the 2019 one. And if you break it down, you can see that for recurrent cash, that is those cash transfer program. Um, and also for in-kind, that includes, uh, for example, um, public housing. That poverty rate actually still increases from the 2019 rate. But if you look at non-recurrent cash, um, it actually have reduces the poverty rate, which means the government stimulus program, the relief program, helps a lot with these people who lose their job or who have lost a lot of working opportunities um, during the COVID time. And I think this aligns with um, other developed countries because um, before uh, it's like the after force intervention, actually, the society becomes more equal. And because of the definition of the poverty line, it's defined as 50% of the medium, so it's actually not an absolute poverty line, but a relative poverty line. Um, and then it would, 
I mean, if you focus on all these indicators, it would direct you to think about, you know, what kind of transfer program you would use mm-hmm. instead of, um, you know, undergoing training, how to improve um, job opportunities, uh, productivity, that kind of thinking. And also family um, uh, policies could be one too, because for uh, women, they, they uh, may need to take care of the children and kind of go to work when the children are too young. But... If you have one more person who can work, that actually help to um, reduce the uh, burden of um, household and also may leave them out of the poverty line, and especially for a single mother too. So yeah. all these policies add together, and also for you know elderly, that about um, a consistent stream of income uh, after they retire, and it. It could be about retirement protection, pension, you know, and also reverse mortgage or even annuity because they, these, these income streams could be counted as the, uh, as the income. And because the property line only counts income and does not count wealth. So if you work on the property line itself as the target, it, it may distort some, um, I mean, focus on um, what the government should be looking at. Dr. Yoon, uh, like you just mentioned, the, the figures uh, that we, from we can, what we can see, um, government intervention makes quite a big difference to the poverty figure. So, so does it mean that uh, structurally the government will have to continue to offer uh, one-off non-recurrent measures to, to help the poor? Well, uh, because that's substantial uh, in terms of the amount for the $10,000 of cash given out, and... For the poverty poverty line, I mean, ten thousand dollars to the medium income is as a proportion less than ten thousand dollars to somebody who actually lost most of the income. So it helps a lot of lifting them up from the um, poverty line. Well, actually, there has been an advocacy for like a decade already uh, for universal basic income. That is to strip away all these complicated social welfare programs that. Um, takes um, a lot of administration costs, trying to filter out who do not fulfill the criteria receiving um, and some of the uh, social transfer and just have a basic weight of um, uh, if you form the certain line, you will be given, you will be top up until that line and that could Simplify things. I think that that could be a direction we are going to because the more programs that you establish, it, it becomes more complicated and then more administration, uh, administration costs. And in, in terms of targeting, um, the leftists or the social workers in Hong Kong always say that, you know, that people who need it but they couldn't get it, etc., that kind of thing. So um, for... That $10,000, because it's universal, it, it's very costly, actually. It, it takes a lot of the taxpayers' money. But because it's universal, there isn't a big problem of getting it to those who need it because um, all people get it. So I think that's why it is actually the most effective way of alleviating poverty in 2020. Now, with uh, inflation and, and rising food prices and longer waiting time for public housing, a lot, uh, um, what expectations do you have for the future? I mean, will the poverty situation worsen significantly? Um, I think if you're talking about long-run trend, I think for inflation, the poverty line doesn't um, take that into account. I think it only takes account 
um, income, and I believe it's income approach, not expenditure approach. So I think, well, of course, they uh, for living expenses, especially food, uh, it contributes a larger proportion to um, the lower class budget than the middle class. So it would um, make it even harder for them to survive. And then for public housing, yes, it wouldn't, um, I mean, the waiting time wouldn't be lower, I mean, as the government said, at least for like the next five years. And then some supply of public housing will come. And But, but for public housing, I, I do think it's a very bad transfer program because I I know a colleague from another university calculated using 1998 to 2003 data and said that the efficiency of it, if it's replaced by um, cash instead of like subsidy, instead of giving them a, an apartment, uh, it, it's like 10% of the efficiency. So it means giving out cash is more efficient. But then, you know, giving out you know, in an apartment, it's very inefficient as they do not get to choose flexibly where they live and they cannot cash out more if, if they're willing to live in um, places that are further. And it doesn't really help people who are on the queue, uh, except for a new scheme that, uh, that subsidizes them if they have waited for more than three years and they pass all means tests. But, I mean, for the UK, for example, the social housing program, they, I mean, they giving up in building more like social housing. Instead, they give out cash subsidy and allow you to rent whatever place you want in the town. Mm. And that would actually help immediately if I get through the administration thing. Like let's say it's half a year, and I can already get help. I don't need to wait on the queue for like six years. And that it, it's an average, which means that people who wait like more than ten years. And I think this is utterly is not helping people who are in need. More cash, more flexibility, more efficient. Got it, Professor Paul Yip. You've been hanging in with us. Um, what's your take on on the? What's your prognosis? Are we doomed to have a, a rising poverty rate in Hong Kong, or do you think current measures are going to make a difference and, and turn the tide on this one as as the economy recovers from COVID? Well, I think if we still have cash, then yes, we can spend it. But please spend it wisely. And then I also like to remind the government that it's not their money; it's our money. But yes, when we're looking at the future, it is not uh, very promising, as I said, because we do have an aging population, and then we also see the um, this migration. I think that will heat up the workforce, I think, um, of the societies. So I think unless I think we can see a bigger determination, I think, of the government, I think, to improve, I think, the education and the training, the skill set of our, our population. And I think the situation is getting tougher because at this moment, we still talk about 80.5% of young people can go to the university. So we're still talking about, I think there are 40% of our young people who are not very highly educated. They have to enter the workforce and most likely these people. I think if we do not give them proper training, I mean, they will still stay in a low SES group, the low social economic status group, and then their chance, I mean, their, uh, their so-called upward mobility, I think, will be very much affected because, I think, of their low skill training. Professor Yip, uh, looking at the latest average waiting time of uh, 5.9 years for public housing, uh, just unveiled by the uh, Housing Authority, what, what can we expect in the next few years? Well, I think the good, 
the government just have to work harder. It, actually, it is not because they do not have land. It is not because I think they do not have this uh, facility. It, 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 they just do not work hard enough. I mean, as you can see now, if they try to create this uh, social housing, I think if everything they are in place, it, it actually it can happen. I think in the uh, next uh, 18 months or so. So I think now it is just as a matter of the implementation, whether they have the disability, I think to implement, I think this policy effectively. And also, I think we just have to deal with, I mean, how to uh, uh, try to make use of our space we have. I mean, to try to redeploy, I mean, to create more public housing is not the solution. I think what we have to do, we should make this a home ownership scheme to get some sort of cheap social housing, which which can sell it to the community and which they can own the apartment. And I mean, that will be a All right, so we'll have to wrap up the, the, the discussion here for now, but I, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity to discuss this issue in future. Once again, thank you to both of you for joining us this morning. That's uh, Professor Paul Yip, the Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration, and Dr. Vera Yoon, an Economics Lecturer at the University of Hong Kong. It's now 18 minutes past nine, and it's time for us to move on to our final topic today. And it's the opening of the M Plus Museum in West Kowloon. It's Asia's first institution dedicated to 20th and 21st century visual culture. And after years of delay, it will finally open to the public in less than an hour's time. To discuss the significance of M Plus, we're now joined on the line by John Batten, the president of the International Association of Art Critics Hong Kong. Good morning, Mr. Batten. Hi, Janice. Thanks for joining Hi, us again. Good morning. Thanks for joining us again on Backchat. Um, I actually went on a media tour of M Plus yesterday, and I'm no expert, but it was a very spacious and it had a wide variety of artwork there, including a few by Chinese dissident Ai Weiwei. So, so what do you think of M Plus? Well, you're right. The the Sikh collection, which is the the big Chinese collection at M Plus, is a very interesting take on on the Chinese art story because the the collection really covers the period um, at the start of, of China opening up after the death of Mao and um, the end of the Cultural Revolution and then the economic reforms um, introduced by Deng Xiaoping uh, in the early 90s and the exhibit the, the exhibition is, is interesting for me and a lot of people and also controversial because this is also a time when, like if, if you went to, to China, as I did in the late 80s, you know, people were avidly looking in bookshops at uh, foreign magazines and foreign books, uh, especially those with, with illustrations. So, you know, it could be anything like fashion to, to art. Um, and they absorbed all these 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 visual images, and the artists um, reacted uh, in a very strong way to what was what was happening in in the West in, in visual art. And in many ways, they they replicated and copied and were inspired by by what was happening in in the West. But of course, the things they were looking at were in many ways the things that were being done in the 60s. So 
when you go to the sick collection, you, you look at it and it's sort of um, a deja vu, vu almost of, of what, what had happened 30 years earlier. So there's a lot of um, photographs of, of happenings and performance art. And the, the Chinese artists were very smart. They realised that they were looking at images that had been documented. And so they did the same thing. They, if they did a performance, they always ensured that there was a photographer on hand. Um, or, and then later um, they filmed these, these events. So the Sick Collection is this, this almost time capsule of when, when China was opening up. And the criticism of the collection is, is, is that, in that it's, one, it's a, a reflection of that, those, uh, that inspiration of Western art, but also that it's a, it is sort of stuck in a, a period of time. But of course, M Plus has just opened, the collection will grow, and that Chinese collection will also grow. Yeah. What, what is your What is your take on the curation of it? The way it's laid out, the flow. Do you think it's going to work when it's filled with the teeming masses? Uh, I mean, what, what was your your sense of of that development of of some of the different galleries? Maybe you can comment on specific galleries. Yeah, I, I think actually, in some ways, M Plus is lucky that COVID is here because we won't have the masses of, of mainland tourists that we are so used to in Hong Kong. Mm. And um, so in these, these, these coming months, you know, mainly be Hong Kong residents that will visit. The galleries are, are basically on one floor and it's a huge floor and there's a central atrium and you, um, you choose your gallery from, from that central atrium. And um, I, I think it's, it, it's got, what surprised me is actually, it, it, in many ways, it's like a, um, a commercial building. You have a core and then it, you allow whoever buys it or rents it to, to put their own, um, their own walls up. And that's basically what it is. It's a huge space with, um, over time, movable walls. There's some, what, what surprised me actually is um, the amount of natural light. I yeah. hadn't appreciated that on my previous two occasions. And yesterday was a lovely day and, and we had the late winter uh, uh, sunlight coming through. And the light comes down through, uh, through some um, open spaces uh, where the garden is. There's a, there's a platform which is open space, so the light can come through there. But also, there are some fa fabulous views of of Hong Kong and, and Victoria Harbour, mm. which which haven't been mm. covered up. So when you're walking through the galleries, you'll get glimpses going through some smaller galleries where the the windows are open, and um, you know there's beautiful natural light, including coming into some of the galleries. And on the the lobby level, there's this huge lobby. Mm -hmm. And then you can then go into the cinemas. There's a, a learning hub. Um, I haven't really checked out all the the, the the restaurants, but I'm sure they're all scattered around the place. Um, there, there's natural light coming in, and I, I was surprised. And, of course, you can uh, go out on a number of platforms. There's a, a beautiful space where you can walk up uh, or sit outside on a, um, on a, on a stepped uh, terrace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was surprising. Yeah, I think I think once there's the natural flow of people, I think it'll it'll even out. 
the, as I say, most of the galleries are on one floor, so I imagine there will be some crowding in the that central atrium or central lobby. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of spaces for people to spread out. There's a thing called the Grand Stair where you can sit. Um, I, I think one concern for me is always seating, and I don't think they should be stingy about seating. I'd like to see some more added, but that's a minor a minor issue. Um, and uh, in and your then, in your view, uh, how does uh, this uh, how does M plus compare to other major international museums such as uh, Tate Modern and uh, MoMA? Look, um, you know, people always automatically associate M plus with Tate Modern, MoMA, the uh, Pompidou. You know, these, these are institutions that have been around for for MoMA was started in the in, in the 1930s. You know, they've got 70, 80, 90 years of collecting history. We, we need to be very realistic and keep our expectations in check with, with M+. It is a great museum, and I think the highlights of the collection, as, as, I, as I said earlier today on the radio, is the, the, the Chinese collection. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, the, the Hong Kong collection will be expanded to include, I'd like to see more photography and more collection of, of local videos because there's lots of people doing um, not art videos but very interesting little social documentaries uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, Once that is consolidated then the collection will build up to be I think something quite significant and then in the area of design and architecture uh, outside uh, apart from outside 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 Japan sorry outside Japan there are very few institutions in in the Asia Pacific region mm-hmm. uh, looking at design and, and architecture. So M Plus ha- will have a, a significant presence, I think. Apart from the fact that it is uh, big, it's large, it's professionally run. Yeah. Yeah, I, I you know I had a little bit of an advance tour about a month ago, and there was only a couple of uh, only a couple of galleries were open, including the Hong Kong one, which I thought was really interesting because it had kind of a it, it was coherent but it was also very diverse you know you would walk in and there would be traditional ink paintings and then it would go to sculptures and then it would be like uh you know kind of you know the kind of the, the design and art of that psychedelic videos uh you know kind of set in this mirrored hall you know hong kong is represented in video games i mean it was a real real mix of stuff but it still seemed to fit did you have a sense that there was a coherent vision with each of the each of the galleries, yeah, Andrew. I think your description of the Hong Kong Gallery is is exactly right, and it uh, it contrasts with the the other spaces, which are more open, more clean, less cluttered. Mm. And I, I think the fear, and I said this again earlier this morning, when you have that eclectic approach to to presenting visual culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be a bit careful that you don't start getting into the the area of social history museums. And you know, a, a few weeks ago, someone said to me, "Oh, what did you?" I asked them, "What, what did you think of M Plus?" And they said, "Oh, well, it was a bit like going to the Heritage Museum." But hmm. in 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 comment of the Hong Kong galleries, and that would be very damning, I think, if if it becomes like that. Yeah, and. The challenge at the moment for, for M Plus is they've got a, a collection of about 8,000 works. And of course, in these opening uh, two years, uh, they will try and show uh, most of that collection 
And so I think you're getting a feel of that eclectic approach at the moment. And mm. I think that's fine. Uh, I think once it, um, it, it settles, I would like to see focused, um, curated exhibitions on, you know, artists from Asia and Hong Kong and, and do that sort of thing that you do, you know, little focus exhibitions and thematic exhibitions on a topic. And they will do that. But at the moment, I, th- I, I get the feeling it's, it's really showing the collection. I mean, one major uh, ex- exhibition they've got on at the moment is Anthony Gormley's Asian Field, which mm. is a, a huge installation of these clay figures that were made by villagers outside Guangzhou. And um, this takes up a huge amount of space. When you go, you, you have a glimpse into a room full of these little uh, clay figurines or clay figures, mm. and um, it's very impressive, but it, it's taken up a lot of space of, of one area of that, that gallery floor, and in, I think that's, that, that will stay uh, on display until the end of February, okay. and then, of course, that will then be turned into another exhibition. Mm. Um, so you take out that, that big display, and we'll see some, some, some further exhibitions. I didn't, in that in that one space. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see that one, but I, I was amazed at some of the finds. Like you find like an IMP in in doing something you never thought IMP did, or Buckminster Fuller or Zara Hadid. I mean, some really amazing little things popped out all over the place. So, Janice. And uh, um, if I mean, and uh, Mr. Batten, for, for just finally, for people who are planning to go to visit M Plus, apart from the works you've just mentioned, what other artwork would you say they definitely need to take a look at? Well, I, I, I think actually when you go to museums overseas that do have displays of ceramics um, and design, if you go to the Pompidou, for example, you'll find the galleries that are pretty sparse, uh, those galleries. But I think, I think there's a fabulous display of architecture and design and um, there's lots of space to look. And I would encourage people to look at those. But let me just say this, that because it's just opened, that many people are, are wanting to go. And I heard yesterday that they've, they've got 200,000 bookings in the next uh, two weeks. So I, I think if you want to visit, you, you, once it settles down, try and go back. Don't over... Try not to see everything. You know, it's the sort of music you can pop back and, and see in little spurts over time. And, um, you know, I hope, I hope it'll, it'll be open um, in the sense that you can get a booking and get in. All right, so we'll have to leave it there. But Mr. Batten, thanks again for joining us on the program. That's John Batten, the uh, president of the International Association of Art Critics Hong Kong. And uh, also many thanks to all of you who commented through email. And of course, thank you, Andrew, and my co-host for today, and Yuki, our producer. And uh, that's it for us this week. We'll be back at 8.30 on Monday. Now, here's the weather, mainly fine and very dry with a a top temperature of around 25 degrees. Winds moderate north to northeasterlies and the outlook mainly fine and dry over the weekend. Right now, it's 22 degrees and the relative humidity, 46%. Under the amended Sex Discrimination Ordinance, Disability Discrimination Ordinance and Race Discrimination Ordinance, 
Workplace participants such as consignment workers, volunteers and interns are protected from sexual, disability and racial harassment even when they have no employment relationship. Don't be silent if you're being harassed. For inquiries, call the Equal Opportunities Commission at 25118211. It's 9.32, the news with Vicky Wong. Hong Kong people will get their first look at one of the cornerstones of the West Kowloon Cultural District as the M-Plus Museum of Visual Culture opens. Communist Party leaders have wrapped up a key meeting in Beijing by passing an important resolution on the country's achievements. And the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has warned climate negotiators in Glasgow to pick up the pace. They're trying to reach a meaningful deal before the scheduled end of the COP26 summit. I'll have more on these stories at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Not too bad at all. Good morning. Even the Good morning. Hello. You never Facebook chat with me. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Good morning to you. Hello and welcome to Friday. It's The Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. It's the time of year when people wear poppies on their lapel, and for a very good reason. Yesterday, the 11th of November, marked the day in 1918 when hostilities ceased in the First World War. This coming Sunday is Remembrance Sunday, when people around the world spare a thought for all those who died in that conflict and others since. So at 10.10 today, the President of the Hong Kong and China branch of the Royal British Legion, that's Brigadier Christopher Hammerbeck, he will be with us to tell you about Hong Kong's poppy appeal, which particularly remembers those Hong Kong souls who didn't survive the Second World War. After 11, it's sports and all with Danny Hicks. It's a golf special today, and we're joined by Cho Min Tan, who is the Asian Tour Commissioner and CEO, the big man of golf in this part of the world. We've got a bit about T20 and a couple of bits and pieces of football as well. A very good morning to Rob, who wrote to me and said, I'm a massive fan of boxing. And I really like Danny Hicks as well. So 